You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 206. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co host, Pontus Böckmann. Swarika! Hey, son, hey, son, Andras, what was that? <laughs> Where it are you? It was what I understand to be the greeting, the proper greeting in Thailand where I'm at. All right. We will see what our listeners in Thailand will think of that interpretation, but uh, points for trying. Actually, I would really love to hear if there is anyone listening to this from Thailand, because, well, Thailand is not very much of a critical (laughs) thinker country. They are all immersed deeply in religion, uh, Buddhism, all the different uh, superstitions and everything you can imagine right. uh, they believe in. So it's uh, it would be great, especially that I'm coming back twice in the next two months. Yeah. So please, if, if you listen to this from Thailand, please get in touch yeah. because I would love to meet you next time I'm here. Is there, is there any special pseudoscience that you've seen? Oh no 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 no! All the all the weird health claims—they believe in ghosts and spirits—and not just a couple of people. It's not a marginal thing. It's like deeply entrenched in society. Well, yeah. Okay. So Can it's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> so, it brings out a lot of amazing cultural things to explore. Mm. But hey, you still yeah. very interesting <laughs> field trip you have there. Mm? How have you been? I'm fine. A little bit cold. I've been working. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have a, a little bit of a cold, so I hope my voice comes through. Uh, but I think it's fine. I will just soldier through, and I hope uh, our listeners can hear me. But I hear that you've uh, you and VOF as well. You you guys have been quite busy lately, isn't that? Correct. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we have in the Swedish Skeptics, as we mentioned last on the last episode, written an article that we translated into English about something mm-hmm. called disk analysis and specifically about a man called Thomas Eriksson uh, who promotes this. This is a personality test, which is bogus. And I was interviewed also by Richard Saunders on the last episode of the Skeptic Zone. Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, well done. yeah. Which is, of course, the Australian, but still very global podcast. It is indeed. Yes, and then the story was also picked up by Steve Novella from the Skeptics Guide to the Universe, and he blogged about it on his Neurologica blog. So uh, mm-hmm. good to get. Uh, we really want to have uh, to spread this information because Thomas Eriksson's books are translated into English, or some of them are on their way to be translated. And also into many other languages. I know there's a Dutch version, a Korean version, I believe. And so this is really being a global thing. So we would, uh, from the ESP and the Swedish skeptics, we would very much encourage people to get a hold of our English article, which we will link to in in the show notes. And I would just want to say that anyone who wants to are free to translated into their local language a dutch version has already been done and there have been other requests can we translate it and yes you can uh, we are you're free to translate it and publish it everywhere the books that thomas erickson are selling are available on amazon both in the us but also in the uk in the netherlands in germany and everywhere i've looked in australia so I think one good idea would be to go into the review section there and leave, leave a review and then link to our uh-huh. article because that explains why it's all nonsense. It's really, really annoying to see this being such a big success when we know that it's, it's just nonsense. Uh, does Amazon allow you to leave a review even if you haven't purchased the item? Yes, uh, yes, I believe they do. Okay. Because I know that no, there are a couple of uh, providers of uh, different services that do not allow for that, like uh, Booking.com, I think. Yeah. They don't allow you to leave a review yeah. if you haven't stayed in the property. Yeah, I think Amazon is fine if you if you have to have an account, I think, but uh, a lot of people have. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
Amazon doesn't have very high standards. <laughs> no. <laughs> that much that much we know. That we and it's proven <laughs> now when they sell his books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well done. I I I mean it's amazing and and thank you for putting it out there. And we should thank Richard and uh Stephen as well. Of course, yes. For picking up on it. Mm. And oh my god. I'm pretty sure that they made it much more well-known to mm-hmm. the skeptical public than we could ever have. Yeah. I, l- I love these kinds of uh, collaborations and helping out, out each other and having each other's backs in the skeptical uh, Yes, yeah, for sure. We, we should do that much more than we do, I think. Yeah. And if you have, any of our listeners have similar projects or similar issues that you want to highlight on the global market, of course, we we are here to help and we can also get you in touch with other people as well yeah and please get in touch we would love to spread the word and uh, if you want to do that you can find us on uh, vesp.eu which is our website and you can contact us on a contact form which is available there you can find us on twitter uh, you can tweet at us under espodcast underscore eu or you can find us on Facebook and leave us a message there. So there are lots of ways to get in touch. Please do so. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we do welcome people and thank people who have uh, gone to patreon.com slash the ESP and pledged to support the show. That helps a lot. And we are very grateful for that. Yes, yes, of course. There are a lot of things that we need to take care of that cost money, like uh, equipment, like uh, like providing hosting services uh, for us. Mm-hmm. And who knows, if we get enough donations, uh, we might be able to attend a couple of uh, gatherings and events that uh, we otherwise would have to pay for, for ourselves, right? Yes. Um, so every little dollar or euro, everything is welcome, and uh, we really appreciate it. But enough of uh, that talk, because uh, I think we should focus on the service that we provide, and <laughs> that is a show that is called the European Skeptics Podcast. So... Unfortunately, Yelena is not with us today. She she couldn't make it to the recording. Yeah, we we might be feeding new speculations about <laughs> how we 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 cannot fit in the same show. No, there is nothing like that in the background. We <laughs> we would love to be all three of us would love to be together on the show, but it's proving more and more difficult to pull off as we are spread across the globe. Mm-hmm. We won't give <sighs> up. We won't give up. Yeah, I wish I wish it hadn't been been a globe. If it'd been a a disc, it would much be much more. I'm more into it. Would be much easier. Donut shape, maybe that would be more donut. Donut? Why not? Okay, yeah, it's just as random. Yeah, we could just eat us our way <laughs> through the the whole thing. <laughs> Start digging ourselves yeah. into it. All right, <laughs> enough of nonsense. So. Uh, since Yelena is not here, I will um, take over for uh, This Week in Skepticism. And the anniversary we are going to honour this week is that of the birth of a highly influential British zoologist and ethologist, Desmond John Morris. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of him? I don't recognise the name, no. Okay. Um, He was born in England on the 24th of January 1928, which means he's less than two years younger than the person who could, I think, well be the oldest television personality still in action, Sir David Attenborough. All right. (laughs) Well, Desmond Morris has had his fair share of being a TV personality as well, and, and he's also a painter and everything, but... Our listeners have probably come across uh, some of his books, especially if they're pet owners, as he wrote extensively about why different animals behave the way they do. And compared to a lot of bullshit and superstitious approach found in a lot of other books covering these topics, he applied a very science-based approach. That's not to say all his theories and explanations stood the tests of time in the scientific literature, but the approach is more or less what a skeptic appreciates. Mm -hmm. His greatest work, at least when it comes to the international reception of it, was titled The Naked Ape. And it was published back in 1967. In this book, 
he simply took the same approach and discussed human behaviors and biological traits from a zoological and ethological point of view, stirring up quite a controversy with it. Mm-hmm. I remember when my biology teacher, knowing how interested I was in, in everything that had to do with biological organisms, recommended it to me. I was fascinated. One of the most captivating reads I've ever had. Well, it seems like it's it wasn't only for me. It got quite an attention. So so much so that, that some groups even cried heresy there. Imagine in 1967... Just talking about humans and the human species as a member of the animal kingdom. Oh my god, that was <laughs> well. Some are more too much for some. Some are more like animals <laughs> than others. So I think it's. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, since then, a lot of his ideas and explanations have been either debunked or proven to be slightly off. Morris was even accused of sexism over his way of discussing the matter, but I honestly think he tried to apply the current findings of his times. So scientifically speaking, he was mostly spot on, with only a few but very important exceptions. Ah. One of those widely discussed, extremely controversial theories mentioned in the book was the so-called aquatic ape theory. Ah, Does that ring a bell? Yes, that one I've heard about. Okay. I didn't know it was him. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I, I, well, it wasn't him. So, so let me get it right. The aquatic ape theory proposed that the direct ancestors of current humans had been much more aquatic in their lifestyle, at least in part of our evolutionary history, than any of the other great apes, mm-hmm. naming functional hairlessness, uh, subcutaneous fat, and bipedalism as only a couple of the traits that supported the idea. Now, he wasn't the one coming up with the theory himself, though, uh-huh. uh, but rather used uh, the theories of um, a guy named Alistair Hardy, who was a marine biologist, and he built the idea, at least in part, on the explanations of a, of a German pathologist from a hundred years earlier by the name Max Westenhofer. I hope I pronounced the name well. Westenhofer, <laughs> yeah, okay. Westenhofer. Westenhofer. <laughs> Yes, something like that. Yeah. Well, the the theory was, in Hardy's time, mostly ignored by the scientific community, despite him writing several books on the topic, but but it was still enough for him to get slightly marginalized over it. However, once it received more attention through Morris's book, it got outright rejected as pseudoscience by most scientists, but without a proper explanation as to why that would be the case. Even Daniel Dennett discussed the fact that not a single biologist could or cared to explain the claim that it wasn't a valid theory. So in science, you, you see that you should be explaining why it cannot be the case, so why nothing supports the theory. But there haven't been any explanations like that. And... In science popularization circles, it gained quite a momentum, including the support of the aforementioned David Attenborough. Mm. Even the, the BBC, the Beeb, aired a radio documentary too with, with David Attenborough that bore the title The Waterside Ape. Mm. Now, to, to, to cut the long story short, the dust has still not settled on the question of uh, whether we had some aquatic or waterside periods in our evolutionary history as a species of the animal kingdom. Only one more thing. You might have heard or read about this. Plus One published an article a couple of weeks ago that made the news, namely that Neanderthals in present-day Italy seem to have used marine resources indicating diving activities of some sort, Mm -hmm. as some of the findings suggest submerged sources of food at the time. Okay. So the the debate is back on it seems. <laughs> yeah. But the Neanderthals <laughs> and, uh, but the Neanderthals were much later than what the, the aquatic ape theory discusses, right? Because... Yes, but it could have been a remnant ah. of that aquatic ape background. Okay. So, so the Neanderthals that... could have gone back to the sea just like their ancient ancestors then. Okay. Uh, yeah, but the, the discussion is, is also over what periods within the evolutionary history of humans it occurred, this aquatic ape phase. So, yeah, but it's fascinating. And, and, and I'm quite sad that, that Desmond Morris and his book 
was not even mentioned in the reportings of of this <laughs> theory okay. again. Yeah. So it looks like it falls onto us to honor his work yeah. by remembering that his birthday is on this week. Okay, good. <laughs> Desmond Morris. Yeah, Desmond Morris. But I, it has had uh, social implications for the culture that we live in. I think that the, the the idea that you should give birth underwater stemmed from this idea that this is more natural because once upon a time the human ape or before we became humans we used to do that we used to spend much more time in water have you heard that as well yeah 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 mm. but th- there are a lot of very fascinating things to to say about this and and i remember reading about it absolutely blew my mind mm. because it just felt right i mean i know since then i've read a lot of things that were mere speculations about a lot of different topics that kind of clicked in my mind and they sounded very plausible as well so i'm i'm much more cautious with uh, with all the things that i read in uh, desmond morris's book mm. but still yeah it is a valid competing idea since in the the history of human evolution there are so many missing pieces of the puzzle yeah i'm not banging on the usual all oh, the missing link uh, kind <laughs> of arguments but there are a lot of very, very dark spots that we have no idea what happened there and then. Dismissing it offhand is 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 just totally unscientific. And this is why I definitely agree with uh, Daniel Dennett, yeah. who's, who said, nobody could or cared to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, and I admit that when I heard about it, I dismissed it out of hand, thinking this is that's a stupid idea and I yeah. didn't want it to... So I'm guilty of doing that. I think... It should require more analysis before you just uh, uh, dismiss something. You should look into it. But to me, it sounded a lot like cherry-picking certain things. The fact that we don't have too much fur, that we swim, and the other apes do not tend to swim, and things like that. And I said, well, that's not enough to explain it. But then again, I didn't study the whole theory. Yeah, but there are there are a lot of things, a lot of lot of details that put together. It's like uh, when you discuss evolution, you don't have one thing that points towards it, but it's the myriad of things that you put together, and then you get a, a clearer picture. Yeah. And the other thing, and we should probably f- uh, finish on this, there have been a lot of misunderstanding and misrepresentations of the theory. So the aquatic ape theory. And I'm pretty sure that this is why in the BBC documentary they used the word waterside instead of aquatic. Mm. Because the, the word aquatic suggests that we actually lived, or our ancestors actually lived in the water. Not like being evolved to endure longer periods of time in the water. Some people started misrepresenting this, misquoting this as us being closely related to cetaceans or or to whales, whales yeah. or mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah no it's not the case it's just some evolutionary advantages might have occurred by us adapting to more watery environment mm. and if you put it like that it becomes much less weird yes in a way but then again yeah. how do you explain the prince of wales oh oh i'll have to edit that out that, that's a <laughs> that's a dad joke that can't... no no <laughs> In uh, Victoria, in Canada, uh-huh. there is a company called the Prince of Wales, and they they are organizing <laughs> whale watching tours. <laughs> okay, so it was not just a bad dad joke; it was not even the first time anybody thought about it. So I apologize. Yes, that's that's correct. That's correct. <laughs> okay. All right. Moving on. Uh, moving on. Have you got something to poke the poke for this week? Or do I? Oh, okay. <laughs> The plot thickens, as they say, around the book in defense of celibacy that was published last week, known as From the Depth of Our Hearts. As we mentioned in a previous episode, the book was published by Cardinal Robert Sarah and the supposed-to-be-retired former Pope Benedict, who promised when he retired that he would, quote, become quiet to the world after his resignation. This book has been seen by many to violate that promise since our main protagonist, Frankie himself, is due to release his own opinion on celibacy shortly. 
We can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we can't. But it seems now that Benedict has either gotten cold feet about the book or perhaps he's being pressured if you're more inclined to see conspiracies. Oh. Yeah, in any case, it seems like he wants to distance himself from the book. His private secretary last week unexpectedly announced that the book was in fact not co-written by Benedict, but only, quote, contributed by him. He also said that the English version, when it comes out later this spring, would say so on the cover. However, then, the publishers, Ignatius Press contradicted this publicly and said, no, the English version will list Benedict as co-author because that is what he was. And the other author, Robert Sarah, seems to be of the same opinion. So Robert Sarah had to hastily rush over for a visit with Benedict in his residence in Mordor to sort things out. In Mordor? Uh, Yeah, isn't that where he lives? (laughs) And afterwards, uh, Cardinal Sarah declared that all was well, there is no controversy. Well, I don't know what you call it, but uh, there's something all right. It seems to show how delicate the subject of celibacy is in the church. And perhaps also, there is a problem of having two living popes. There's very little precedence for what happens if a pope voluntarily retires. And the last time it happens, it was in 1294. And then the old pope was imprisoned by the new one, and he died in jail a few months later. So I, I imagine that Frankie. Are you making suggestions? No, here? I, I think maybe, <laughs> perhaps, that Frankie will not resort to this. But I also do think that Benedict has done some quite shady things in his life. So maybe, maybe a little bit of a punishment wouldn't be out of place. <laughs> <laughs> you are nasty. Okay. <laughs> That's only part of the poking the Pope this week, because we also got a letter from listener Thomas, who alerted us to a news item that we actually missed about a month ago. There is a charity run by the Catholic Church called Peter's Pence. Wait a minute. Is it Peter's Pants or Peter's Pence? It's Peter's Pence, as is in the money. Okay. Coins. You know, when it comes to (laughs) things like celibacy and child abuse... Peter's Pence is something that doesn't really sound very (laughs) out of context. No, your confusion (laughs) is quite natural. (laughs) Uh, No, Peter's Pence is a well-known and supposedly legitimate charity for the poor run by the church since many years. Andras, I know you listen to the reality check. Yes, I do. How much would Darren McKee say is reasonable for a donation to a charity to actually reach the intended beneficiary percentage wise if if you give a hundred a hundred dollars how much you reach i do not know but uh, what would you say then i would be okay with it being about at least 80 but more like 90 percent that's what i think as well 80 or 90 percent should be okay because when you donate you want the majority of the money that you give to actually reach the course that you are giving to yeah, that's what I that's why I'm giving it to them. Yes. <laughs> Turns out, according to an investigation by the Wall Street Journal, only about a tenth of the money given to Peter's Pence actually goes to the poor. What? <laughs> about a quarter of it goes to investments, and there was a recent scandal about real estate in in London. That's a whole another story that I'm not going to go into now. And then Two-thirds of the money given to Peter Spence actually goes to cover administrative costs and deficits in the Holy See. And that is a decision that Francis himself makes. He has the last word on all Peter's pens, or all Peter's pennies, I should say. What 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 does that include? Like, uh, does it include like legal cases or uh, things like uh, I don't know bribery? Yeah, we don't have a lot of insight into the actual finances of the Vatican, but two thirds okay. of the money donated to Peter's pens goes to cover holes in the budget of the Vatican. Fuck. And these donations that are pushed for worldwide every June is specifically marketed to go to quote-unquote the needy. I don't think the Vatican is the needy part in the world. Not... (laughs) Uh, I tend to agree with you on that. 
<laughs> so, so we hear again and again the excuse that no matter what you think about religion, at least religions provide a lot of good charity work. Doesn't seem yeah. like it to me. For, yeah. To me, and I'm cynical I, I, in this case, but the foundations of religions are levels of scams all the way down. It's not even turtles. It's scams all the way down. So yeah. think about that well, before you donate to a Catholic charity. And if you want to donate, and especially if you have a good cause in mind, please check out, now that you mentioned uh, Darren McKee, he proposed we all check out givewell.org. Yes. And uh, you will find a lot of good information on which charities do what. And if you check them out, you will see that your money will be going to where you want it to go. Mm. It's better than the Catholic Church. Yes, it is. Everything is better than the Catholic Church. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but still. Yeah. And believe it or not. I stand by my statement. Yeah, you do that. Believe it or not, I actually had more poking to do this week, but I'll save it for next time. I think we need to get through some of the other stuff as well. <laughs> All right. All right. You know, one thing that occurred to me is that the former Pope, he's like just uh, emerging from his ashes or, or what's happening? I don't know. So this is why it's a much clearer situation. I'm not suggesting anyone kills him. No. <laughs> uh, may the blind forces of selection favor him for long. But it's much clearer a situation when the Pope dies and then they have to elect a new Pope. Mm. Because then, from the grave, a former Pope cannot interfere with any current events. Oh, it's strange how that is. Yeah, yeah this <laughs> former Pope doesn't seem to be able to do that, to mm. refrain from interfering. Mm. Fuck off, man. You're retired. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much <laughs> for right. poking the Pope once again. Thank you. And we're moving on <laughs> to the news. There is a story that has been making rounds on the internet in the last few weeks, claiming that the government of Sanna Marin, the Prime Minister of Finland, who is also frequently referred to as the youngest sitting PM in the world, is planning to introduce a four-day working week with six-hour working days. Mm. Well, it got picked up by several news outlets, and then it was only a matter of hours before the, the general public started to share it on social media platforms like crazy. I keep seeing it on Facebook even until now. Yeah. So, uh, what's going on there? Obviously, knowing how progressive some of the different policies of Finland and some other Nordic countries are, it wouldn't be that surprising if it were true, would it? No, we. we I mean, as a Swede, I would say that we have fairly generous rules for working and having vacations, etc., but uh, France is not far behind. Oh, actually, France is ahead of us. They have even better rules there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but so there are progressive policies in, in some of these countries. Yeah. Well, of course, we do know of a, of a couple of countries where one or more companies have experimented with uh, this uh, four-day, six-hour schedule and got quite encouraging results. Unfortunately, though, when it comes to Finland, there's nothing like that going on at the moment. You mean you can't believe what you read on the internet? <laughs> yeah, more more or less, that's what I mean. Oh. <laughs> so you you might have guessed, as, as usual, there was an element of truth to the background of the claims, oh. but we have to make it clear that this is not government policy, at least not yet. Okay, but where does it all come from then? Once upon a time, well, <laughs> only months ago... <laughs> In August 2019, a few months before her party got elected and formed a coalition to govern Finland, the 34-year-old politician and young mother, who was then Minister of Transport in the government, attended a panel discussion during the 120th anniversary celebrations of the Social Democratic Party in Turku, where she did propose the idea in a why-not fashion. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what she said. Quote, a four-day work week, a six-hour workday. Why couldn't it be the next step? Is eight hours really the ultimate truth? I believe people deserve to spend more time with their families, loved ones, hobbies, and other aspects of life, such as culture. This could be the next step for us in working life. End of quote. Hmm. Well, 
Interestingly, there was a news outlet, New Europe, a Brussels-based EU affairs newspaper, that did get it right when they reported it on this on the 2nd of January, even mentioning how she's not following up on her proposal since she got behind the steering wheel. But later reporting somehow got the whole thing twisted into suggesting this is now government policy. Mm. So what happened in between the two is unclear to me. <laughs> but it's some, somehow something has gone lost in translation or something. Yeah. And although she's very active on social media herself, it was the Finnish government that rebutted the claim on Twitter, after which some news outlets issued corrections to their original stories. Not all of them, though. And as I mentioned earlier, it is still widely circulating on Facebook. Interesting additional fact, though. She might be the youngest sitting PM in the world, but not the youngest head of government. Ooh. Because... There's a, the there's a prince of or something? Austria. Oh, the Chancellor of Austria. No, no, Austria. Ah. the Chancellor of Austria, Sebastian Kurz, ah. who is also the head of the federal government of his country, happens to be 284 days younger. Ah. <laughs> and this is the second time he is in charge, right? Yes, and he was only 30 when he got elected. Ooh. Yeah. Where do you go so, from here? Career development. It's quite a thing, yeah. Yeah, like, now, now we're going to elect 20-year-olds mm -hmm. to government. Yeah. No, please don't do that. No. I think I think a one criterion should be that people should be out of their puberty <laughs> before they got elected. <laughs> so let's make it like 24, 25, because and half, especially, yeah. especially men tend to get to that stage at a, a later yes, age. Yes, they do mature very, <laughs> very slowly. I mean, I'm 55. I'm barely there yet, so... Yeah, I'm far behind you. I'm only 38, <laughs> turning 38 actually in February. But uh, I still don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. Prime Minister? No? No, that much I know that I, I won't be Prime Minister. Okay. I could uh, imagine myself going into working in different policy making methods or processes, but uh, mm. definitely not general politics. Mm -hmm. No. All right, over from Finland, we go just a little bit more east to Russia. There are around 6,000 academic journals in Russia. Most of them, of course, are published in Russian, so uh, we may not be very familiar with them. Mm -hmm. But the problem with them is apparently that the standards for those are often very low. The magazine called Science, which is reliable and in English tells us in a recent article that in March 2018, a network aimed at cleaning up the Russian scientific literature called Dissernet, or something like that, identified more than 4,000 cases of plagiarism and questionable authorship among 150,000 papers in about 1,500 journals. So that's bad. They have a lot Ooh. of cleaning up to Ooh. do. There was, yes, there was, I would say so. Yeah, there was a commission appointed by the Russian Academy of Sciences, and they also found that Russian scientific literature is, quote, riddled with plagiarism, self-plagiarism, and so-called gift authorship, in which academics become co-author without having contributed to any work, end quote. When the report by this commission was published on 7th of January this year, it was described as a bombshell. Already last summer, uh, the commission had asked 541 journals to retract 2,528 papers, whereof this far, about half of the journals have said that they would fully comply at some point, some have not replied, and some have said that they will only partly comply. All in all, more than 800 papers out of the 2,500 ones have been retracted and hopefully more will come. But apparently Russian science publications are the Wild West, or maybe I should say the Wild East, where it's very common to republish the same thing many times over and over again, and the control and peer review is very poor overall. The only good thing is, I guess, that the efforts now by the Russian Academy of Sciences are to try to improve things and make it better. Mm -hmm. Let's hope. Yeah. So we always yeah. we always speak from science, we always refer to peer review, etc. But it's not without its problems and we have to make sure that it's done in the right way. 
Yeah. And uh, even when the, the science is clear and uh, it doesn't seem to be very problematic to, to draw conclusions, when policies have to be based on them, it's a whole different issue. Yeah. So from Russia back to the European Union, mm-hmm. some time ago, we talked about the European Green Deal, which is a, a set of proposed policies that aims to make Europe climate neutral by the year 2050, and also uh, to improve air quality all across Europe for the benefit of people living on the continent. Well, according to some, this is a less than perfect deal, as it should be more ambitious. And yeah, let's be clear, 2050 is not an ambitious plan to go by. We may all be dead by then. Oh yeah, of course. Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe. Let's not. I Try may be to. such an old guy. I may be. Oh, yeah, but 100, 100 something. That's, that's... <laughs> no, I will no, not you be. You won't even be 100. You hey, won't... hang on. Come on. Hang you on. won't even be 100. No, I will not be 86. 86. That's, that's right. Yeah. So, <laughs> why wouldn't you be alive? No. Who else should keep this podcast going? Oh, yeah. <laughs> For 80. <laughs> Another 30 years or so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So based on that, on the latest uh, Eurobarometer survey, uh, when it comes to improving air quality in Europe, EU citizens seem to share the opinion that, uh, that the deal should be much more ambitious. And mind you, this is not about climate neutrality. It is about air quality, this uh, Eurobarometer survey. Mm-hmm. The, the Eurobarometer survey, by the way, is when um, they ask people from basically all the the European countries and try to cover all the basics and different segments of society as well. They try to do a representative survey. Uh, This time, it was 27,000 people that they asked. Hmm. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. The the, the Commissioner for Environment, Maritime Affairs and Fisheries, Carmen Uvella, upon expressing how happy he is to see the support of the public for the cause, claims that air pollution causes 400,000 premature deaths annually and calls for action. I got a little bit sceptical about that number, so I wanted to check this out. What I found was a 2015 Air Quality in Europe report that used actual measurement data from 2012 for 40 European countries. And according to this report... 432,000 premature deaths were attributable to exposure to fine particulate matter with 2.5 microns or less in diameter, 17,000 to ozone on ground levels, and 75,000 premature deaths were due to nitrogen dioxide. Mm. Well, first of all, (laughs) this adds up to more than (laughs) 500,000. Even if we consider only the EU member countries, the numbers go well above 480,000 people. And that's based on data from 2012, published in 2015. And only three of the factors were taken into account. And there, there are a lot more of the, the, the factors get that can have serious health-related effects. There are much more than these three. No mention of sulfuric oxides. Bacteria-infected air conditioning systems that produce unbearingly dry airflows, etc. The health impacts can occur through cardiovascular diseases, breathing difficulties, irritations and inflammations of the respiratory system, resulting in things like severe asthma, lung cancer disease and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. There are also mentions of effects on the reproductive system and I appreciate that estimating how many deaths can actually be linked to these things is difficult, but that's quite scary. Mm. And we're talking about hazards and risks here that need to be dealt with, right? Yeah, I've been holding my breath for the whole time you've been talking because I'm scared to... But scared to death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's another factor. But it uh, seems like it's, it's not scary enough for the Commission to take more serious action, actually. The Eurobarometer survey also showed that the lack of proper information and communication of the issues is, is very apparent. Uh, and I couldn't agree more. But, but all this seems to have forced eight of the most prominent non-governmental organizations of Europe from the field of health and environment to team up and release a public letter to the European Commission. In this letter, there is a particular paragraph that caught my eye. Quote, air pollution is the top environmental threat to health, leading to 400,000 premature deaths. Just mentioning that they keep quoting that freaking 400,000 when we just established that it's more than that. Yeah. 
across the EU. It is a leading risk factor for major chronic diseases, including cancer, cardiovascular and respiratory diseases. New studies also show a link between air pollution and obesity, diabetes and neurological conditions. Vulnerable groups such as children, the elderly, the poor or those already ill are particularly at risk. So, and then they go on about um, mentioning that the Eurobarometer survey shows the European citizens strongly agree. I don't know if uh, that occurred to you as well, but there was a link mentioned between air pollution and obesity. Mm -hmm. Now that caught my eye as well. Wait a minute. A link between air pollution and obesity and diabetes? So I wanted to find out more. (laughs) And... uh, I found a recent review of the current literature from 2018 that tried to assess whether there is an impact on ambient air pollution on obesity. But their conclusion is that, quote, concurrent evidence regarding the impact of air pollution on body weight status remains mixed. Future studies should assess the impact of severe air pollution on obesity in developing countries, focus on a homogeneous population subgroup, and elucidate the biomedical and psychological pathways linking air pollution to body weight. Yes, Mm. please. If you want to be taken seriously, at least get the science right. Don't refer to new studies when those new studies are inconclusive at best. I agree. So it's... Ah, these are serious organizations. These organizations want to be taken seriously, and yet they they don't bother getting the science right. With regards to diabetes, the situation seems to be much clearer, but not perfectly conclusive either. The latest systematic review I, I could find in environmental research was from this month, so January 2020, and concluding that recent publications strengthened the evidence for adverse effects of ambient air pollutants exposure, especially for particulate matter, on uh, type 2 diabetes, and that diabetic patients might be more vulnerable to air pollutants exposure. Mm. Now, that is a bit clearer. It still has a bit of um, uncertainty there that stayed open, but I I believe this uh, holds much more water. So it looks like there is a lot to do. And science, no matter how much uncertainty there is, seems to be pointing us in the direction of seriously changing our ways. And to do that, EU-wide policies and action needs to be taken. But please, get the science right. Hmm. Always a good advice, I think. Yeah. Speaking of which, guess who's back? One of the unsinkable rubber ducks, as Randy would put it. Andrew Bloody Wakefield. Oh, the uh, fucker. So we go to the UK. and I, What is it done again? Yeah. And I guess most of our listeners know of him. But uh, just to make a short recap, Andrew Wakefield published a fraudulent story. Uh, story. Yeah, it was a story. A story. Yeah, just a story. <laughs> made up. Totally made up. Totally made up story. He published a fraudulent study in 1999, which claimed that there was a link between the MMR vaccine, which is against measles, mumps and rubella, and autism. We know now that not only was the data manipulated and dishonestly presented, Wakefield also had financial motives for discrediting the MMR vaccine. No correctly performed study has been able to replicate any of the findings and the study has long since been retracted and Andrew Wakefield has lost his medical license in the UK. But this hasn't stopped him from spreading anti-vaccine Propaganda, of course, and that makes him personally responsible, in my book, for the major part of the current measles crisis in the world, which is disastrous. In 2016, he was instrumental in the release of the film Vaxxed, which continues to spread outright lies and fear about vaccines. And now it's time for the sequel, Vaxxed 2, The People's Truth. By the way, produced by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., known anti-vaxxer, yeah. not together with British anti-vax activist Polly Tommy. On Saturday, 25th of January, just two days after this episode goes out, this new film, Vaxxed 2, will be screened in Notting Hill in London in a publicly owned venue belonging to the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea. 
the borough, oh, no. yeah, the borough has been contacted and say they will not stop the screening from taking place. I'm pretty sure that this is the same venue that screened the first Vaxxed film back in 2017. So it seems that they have some folks there who are sympathetic to the whole anti-vax movement. This, yeah. um, are you sure it's not a, not only cynicism and uh, and the fact that they might be paying for the venue? I don't know, but if you are a publicly employed person, I don't know which one is worse. Yeah, actually. no, <laughs> does it matter really? Is it is there any excuse yeah. that is? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, because this film and its message is a clear danger to the public. You can say whatever you want about freedom of speech and deplatforming and so on, but there must be limits to the kind of nonsense that you're allowed to spread, especially in a publicly owned facility. I agree. Yeah. I definitely agree. It reminds me of of the the times when uh, I had my clashes with uh, creationists at my university, Mm. where I was a student. And every semester, they came to give a lecture on why Darwin was wrong and that evolution is bullshit. And they specifically found the building of uh, the Faculty of Sciences. Mm. So they wanted to the venue to add to their credibility. And I couldn't draw the attention of the faculty members to this issue. I, it took me about three years or two, two and a half years to convince them that this is going on and this is bad. In one occasion, I managed to just drag along one of my teachers who, who, was, a gen, uh, who was teaching genetics. Mm. He was so outraged that he quickly gathered all the department members of the Department of Biology and, <laughs> and they got absolutely furious and they, they managed to kick them out ah, good. for the next semesters. Yeah. But it took me two and a half years to convince them that this, this was bad and this was going on. Well, well done for not giving up. I think it's especially yeah. it's especially worrisome when a publicly owned facility or institution gives place for these stupid ideas because people will assume that it there must be something in it otherwise it wouldn't be held in such a place yeah or the argument could be made that uh, it's not the right way to go about it to just outright ban them but i'm not absolutely in favor of deplatforming but a university could be a place where you could provide a platform for someone, but then provide a good enough counterforce for their arguments. So please have someone there who can defend the views of science mm. when, when it comes to that. But it could be counterproductive, actually, because if you have someone in the audience, so I, I've learned it uh, the hard way. Mm. That if you have someone in the audience who is against what's being told to the audience, that person could be perceived as the troublemaker and the, the very negative person in the room who is just bad, but who, who, who shouldn't be trusted. Yeah. You have to work hard to build up your reputation and build, build up that, that sense of credibility for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, oh. There is another one that uh, last week Yelena talked about, hmm. and that is the upcoming series, The Goop Lab. Oh. The latest collection of bullshit and vagina-related nonsense from Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> uh, she's a brilliant actress, and then she comes along and destroys her image by doing this nonsense. So the series will be released on Netflix on the 24th of January, which is exactly one day after the release of this show. <laughs> hmm. By the way, by the way, it's the same date that Star Trek Picard will be released on Amazon Prime. We recommend that the one. The 24th of January. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, which one I am looking forward to slightly more. <laughs> Anyhow, Papin van Erp, whom we had the chance to interview on episode 125, just published his latest blog post in which he reveals that his fellow Dutchman, Wim Hof, also known as the Iceman, for his demonstrated ability to endure very low temperatures without getting himself harmed, will be featured on the Goop Lab. Ah. Yep. Although Wim Hof 
could not be called a definite quack, as uh, he himself does not make many health-related claims about his training to endure extreme low temperatures, his followers do. And since the Goop makes health claims based on absolutely every nonsense available out there, we should expect nothing less from Paltrow pulling in Wim, Wim Hof to her show. So I guess now that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow will sell ice cubes from Goop because this guy is uh, advocating it. I think I, I foresee some something happening here. Yeah. So it has to be vagina related, right? Ah. So this ice cube smells like my cubes, vagina. No, no, no. Ice cubes go up your vagina, but in order not to do any harm, you have to train yourself. Yeah, and Wim Hof is there to help you. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so Wim Hof, uh, Hof's method might be the thing. So I'm speculating here, but I guess uh, we will find out soon enough what it's all Nothing about. Nothing we come up with will be wilder <laughs> than what Gwyneth uh, Paltrow will come up with. Yeah, but, but this this whole thing is interesting, by the way. So okay. what Wim Hof is all about is, is really interesting. And this was a great opportunity for Pepin to review the available literature again, which is a recommended read, even if, if it did not bring any new revelations, because there have been interesting studies done on his abilities since uh, he, he last wrote about it. Okay. But to see how exactly the Goop Lab will twist the Iceman story, uh, we just need to wait a little longer. Mm. Yeah. All right, so we'll go to Italy, and here we go again. Legal courts deciding on what should be regarded as scientific results. Please don't. No, well, I'm afraid it's too late now. The Turin Court of Appeal in Italy on 14th of January upheld a ruling issued by a lower court in 2017 in relation to a man with nerinoma of the acoustic nerve. This tumor is described as benign but debilitating. I I don't know what that means. If it's benign, how can it be debilitating? Well, if it's in the brain, then it's, yeah, there's no place for any kind of tumor in the brain. (laughs) No tumor in the brain is benign in my book, but I'm not a doctor. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. The benign refers to the actual cell structure and, and how the cells proliferate and everything. Maybe so. it will not spread or something like that. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Apparently, this person had worked for many years in a position where he was on the phone for four to five hours per day. Mm-hmm. One of this man's lawyers said, and I quote, there is no other explanation for the development of this tumor. Bloody hell, that's not how it works. Just because you don't know what caused it, that doesn't prove it was the phone. Wait a minute, was this the lawyer of the doctor? The lawyer of the doctor said, there's no other Ah, explanation for the development of this tumor. It's like saying, because we don't know what it was, we know what it was. (laughs) And the bad thing with this now is that everyone and his uncle will point to this and say, see... It's proved in Italy that cell phone use causes cancer. What actually happened was that two court-appointed doctors said that they had concluded that there was an increased risk of brain tumors among those who talked on their phones for 30 minutes a day over a 10-year period. But that's not science. You shouldn't go to one or two so-called expert opinions. If they even were experts, you must look at the overall scientific consensus. And I get it. I mean, to prove something in court is very different from proving something in science. And of course, I'm fine with that this person now is getting insurance money to cover his illness and his condition. But that's not that's not the point. It's bad and it's wrong to have scientific questions answered in the courts because lawyers are not scientists. What I do love, though, about this story is the criticism from Walter Ricciardi, a former president of the Higher Health Institute in Italy, and this is what he said to an Italian news agency. Quote, The judges in Turin are either from Nobel or they have made a monumental blunder. They have set a unique precedent in the world, reaching a causal link between the use of mobile phones and tumors never before demonstrated by prestigious scientific institutes. And I think that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> yeah. But as you pointed out, I think the great issue here is the public perception about this mm. is not that 
you should question this decision and question the the results of of this activity because it was done by lawyers and not experts but the fact that they claim that uh, this was because of uh, the radiation that it were the, the man was exposed to this is how public communication works this is why i think uh, we should we should finish on um, something very positive and something that i think will be very important for our whole community of skeptics john cook and his name might be familiar to a lot of our listeners we occasionally mention the books he's co-written including the debunking handbook mm. and the uncertainty handbook both of which have been translated to many languages in an international collaboration but uh, now he's going to release a new book that will tell us more about the psychological background of climate science denial in the form of a comic book ah yeah an excerpt of the book is published on skepticalscience.com and it shows how funny informative and well illustrated the book must be it will be released on the 25th of february I particularly like the examples of how a bear jumping out of a bush is an immediate danger hmm. that triggers our flight or f fight or flight response. But if we find a graph in the bush showing us how in the future we'll be doomed, it is simply something that we are not hardwired to even care about. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what the basis of climate science denial is. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this book, and I'm pretty sure that a new international collaboration is brewing somewhere under the hood to translate the book. It would be great to see it in yeah. many different languages. John Cook, and the title is Cranky Uncle versus Climate Change. <laughs> That's the title. And it's available uh, for pre-order. I think it's available for pre-order on Amazon. Yes. Yep. That will be all of the news items that we wanted to cover this week. Why don't we move on to the next segment, which is when Pontus tells us who's been really wrong lately. Yes, in the wake of the terrorist attack on London Bridge on 29th of November last year, executed by a newly released terrorist, resulting in two deaths and several wounded, there have been investigations about how similar mistakes can be avoided. So the mistake is that they apparently released this guy when they shouldn't have. The attacker, Usman Khan, had been released from prison in 2018 after serving time for planning terrorist attacks. Of course, this led to feelings that the UK judicial system doesn't know what it's doing. People were wondering how this guy could have been released uh, when he was a known terrorist. And that's understandable from a psychological point of view. People are upset. I'm upset about what happened. And you mm -hmm. want to put the blame on someone or something. But of course, it's not that easy. We want to live in a society that observes fundamental human rights. And we cannot go around keeping people in jail for something that we believe that they might do in the future. So I'm not trying to make excuses for terrorists, of course. But again, you can't lock up people without due cause. But when there's so much public pressure on the authorities and so many strong feelings involved, reasons very often goes out the window. The UK Home Office and the Ministry of Justice have now announced that they will introduce polygraph tests or lie detector tests <laughs> for convicted <laughs> terrorists. Yeah, you laugh because... What we know is that that doesn't work. It is nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Lie detectors <laughs> are extremely unreliable. What you basically do is what you, you hook up a person to a machine that measures things like changes in the heart rate, in blood pressure, and, and how much they sweat, etc. And the idea is to identify if the person is lying or telling the truth. But what you really are measuring is not if they're lying, but how stressful it is. And the idea is that it's stressful to lie, and if you're stressed, that means you're lying. But that's not ever been proven, really, scientifically. Any interrogation situation can, of course, be very stressful, especially if your future depends on it. There are many other reasons why polygraph tests are, can be misleading, including 
if you have poorly formulated questions and that the interviewer has to subjectively interpret the results. There, there are no lights that comes on saying, this is a lie. Nerd, nerd, nerd. We've all seen it's just squiggly lines coming out of a printer and you need to interpret that and that's very subjective. Also, you can be trained to actively cheat in such tests. For instance, you can induce stress on yourself when you tell the truth to confuse the results because you're only supposed to be stressed when you tell a lie. And don't you think that the most well-organized terrorists could have had such training? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they probably have. And especially they will get now when they hear these news. Because it's well known that polygraphs are not reliable, most countries, including the UK, do not accept lie detector tests in court. And to now introduce this is most likely just a trick by the government to appear to do something in order to reassure the public. And in the meanwhile, they're ignoring legal standards and they're spreading the misconception that this nonsense works. And and, to, mm. and as I see it, it's just for show and they shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, I wonder how much uh, the fact that movies mm. feature lie detectors like that add to... How, how much does it add to this uh, belief that, that it works? Yeah, and in the end, these are politicians behind these decisions, ultimately. And they have also seen these uh, things on TV. And even if they know that uh, this is bullshit. They know also that the public in general may not be- know that. So they're doing it just yes. for the public appearance and, and stuff. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But the, or who knows, like, there, there might be leaders in the world who get their information from TV anyway. So <laughs> Yeah, so whether it's stupi- <laughs> stupidity or cynical <laughs> acting, it doesn't matter. It, it's still wrong. And uh, for introducing pseudoscience and putting legal rights in jeopardy just to appear decisive and determined, the UK Home Office and Ministry of Justice gets this week's prize for being really wrong. Well-deserved prize uh, again. Once again, thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And that is the end of our show for this week. But I think the most fitting for the show. We've we've discussed a couple of uh, policy-making issues that are not based on science and, and things like that. So I think we could not finish on a more fitting quote than this one. And it goes, To spread healthy ideas among even the lowest classes of people to remove men from the influence of prejudice and passion, to make reason the arbiter and supreme guide of public opinion. That is the essential goal of the sciences. That is how science will contribute to the advancement of civilization, and that is what deserve protection of governments who want to ensure the stability of their power. Absolutely. I agree. And this comes from... Baron Georges Leopold Chrétien Frédéric Dagobert Cuvier. <laughs> Olé! No, that's the wrong country. <laughs> also known as Georges Cuvier. Mm-hmm. He was a French naturalist and zoologist, widely recognized as the father of comparative anatomy and paleontology. So, thank you very much. All right. And I'd like to thank you, Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Bye-bye. Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then... Please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. 
All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Oh, I want to say something that... that uh, something clever? Something clever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Is it Peter's pants or Peter's pens? It's Peter's pens, as is in the money. Okay. <laughs> no, okay. actually, Peter's pants is. Uh, sorry, I say again. I say pants, didn't I? <laughs> this is what climate science denial. The basic climate science denial is no. This is what the basis of climate science. Sorry, this is what the basis of climate science denial is. Say it. Say it again. <laughs>